Let's open our Bibles, please, to Proverbs, the 30th chapter. The 30th chapter. We take it verse by verse, and we'll try to draw as much out of each verse as we can. Sometimes we repeat the verse for specific reason to get a little more information as we go back into it and get another thought. The words of Agar, the son of Jacob, even the prophecy, the man spake unto Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and Eucal. Now these words sound very strange, this first verse. And, well, they should because the identity of Agar is unknown. But he's one of many sages that's well known during the monarchy of uh, Solomon's reign. And we find, or at least during the, the kingdom age, I should put it that way, and well, one of the wise men. And so, uh, we, though we don't know his name, we know that he's given us much uh, information here that we need to consider. These two that he speaks of seem to be two of his students. And uh, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 30 and 31, I will read this, and it will give you some information that there were more wise men than just Solomon himself. It says, In Solomon's wisdom, uh, this is uh, 1 Kings 4, verse 30 and 31, Solomon's wisdom exceeded the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. And verse 31 says, he, For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrathite, uh, and Heman, and Calcal, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all nations round about. So it tells us the fact that uh, Solomon was wiser than these others of the same uh, sages, and he was the wisest of all of them. And so we do not know definitely who Agar is. There's some that have speculated that it's even Solomon, and we won't go into that because we have no scriptural proof of it. Some believe that it was Solomon, actually. But uh, we won't go into that because, as I say, we have no scriptural grounds to believe that. Now we get into the content of the message, and that's the main thing. Verse 2, it says, Surely I am more brutish than any man, and have not the understanding of a man. This chapter might deal with true humility in many ways, or at least several verses uh, in the immediate context. And here we find that true humility admits sin and realizes sin. He says, Surely I am more brutish than any man, and have not the understanding of a man. We know that it is a humiliating thing to confess that we are sinners, and to admit our ignorance and lack of understanding. And uh, this is what is admitted in verse 2. In verse 3 he says, I neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. He voices his inability to grasp the deep things of God. And true humility is learned by knowing God. And in verse 4 it tells us that what we may know about God, it says, Who hath ascended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. In other words, God, God's word here puts us on the spot to, to confess that uh, God is above all of our knowledge and understanding. He is above everything. Can you answer all of these questions? Notice it's a series. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the winds in his fist? Can you imagine? 
Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? So the knowledge of God is cited as being a way of, of you and I learning of God and confessing that we do not know all there is to know about God. First, to know God is one thing, and then to know more about him is another thing. We want to look at verse 5 and 6. It says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. True humility comes by knowing His Word and admitting that all of His Word is pure. If you have a marginal reference, it says purified. It is tried. It's tested. He is a shield to them that put their trust in Him. A shield means He's our protector. So if you confess that God's Word is uh, truly to be known, and you know His Word, and you know the value of His Word, and also you know that God Himself is a shield to those that trust in Him. We take that from His Word, and He promises to be our protector, doesn't He? I believe I quoted uh, Isaiah 54, verse 17 this morning in your hearing, where God does show His protection for us. It says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So God has promised that nothing will harm us. We have another scripture in the New Testament that says that, that if God be for us, who can be against us? And the Bible tells us that He is our protector, He is our shield, He is our uh, sword, He is our protector in every sense of the word. Verse 6 says, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. When man tries to add to the word of God, and we have many people today that, I don't know if it's their intention or not, but they're acting as if they know better than God's word by adding so much to it, instead of uh, letting it speak for itself. You know, God's word does speak for itself. We don't have to prop it up or anything. And the Bible tells us not to add to his words. That's the most foolish thing a man could attempt to do. And yet we find people do that. Lest he reprove thee. And if we add to his words and it's contrary to his word, it's going to prove that we thou be found a liar. Because we cannot change the truth of God's word. In verse 7, it says, Two things have I required of thee, deny me them not before I die. Now he's going to ask for two things. First of all, notice what they are. There are two points of his prayer. Two things have I required of thee. And it says in verse 8, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. These two things. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Let's notice the first one. He did not say, Remove me far from vanity and lies. I think I've given you this before, but it's worth repeating. But remove far from me vanity and lies. Do you get the difference? Look at it again. He did not say, remove me far from vanity and lies, as if vanity and lies are out here, and I want to get away from them. I want a distance between me and vanity and lies. But he says, remove far from me. Take them away from me. Separate them from myself. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Put the distance there. And that's what we should ask God for. We don't like to confess that these vanities and these lies are within us. You know, the Scripture says that all men are liars. We don't like that very much either, do we? But uh, that's what the Word says. And by the way, we're not to add to it, so we're not going to reverse it, are we? 
And then it says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Now look, I don't want to be poor and I don't want to be rich. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me or my, of my allowance. Feed me what I need. And he tells the reason in verse 9 for this. Lest I be full and deny thee, if I'm too prosperous and have too much, if you feed me with too too much, I might deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Remember some men are so high. Remember old Pharaoh? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? When Moses said, let my people go. And he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? When a man revolts against God and rebels against God, listen, you're just barking up the wrong tree there, friend, because God is sovereign and mighty and powerful, and he knows how to bring us down. Or you say, well, I know men that have gotten by with it. Not really. There's some that think they've gotten by with it. But you know what a man thinks and what is real is two different things sometimes. No one can lift up himself against the Almighty, exalt himself. Even one of the angels in heaven earlier before the fall tried that, and we know him to be Satan now, Lucifer, that has fallen from heaven. And he said, I will be like the Most High. I will send up into the Most High. I will exalt myself above the Most High. And he was cast down. And the Bible tells us that he will finally really be cast down in the book of Revelation. Chapter 12, I believe, verse 9 and 10, if you'll read it. So, notice this. It says, um, Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? That's verse 9. Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. You know, a man must realize that he can go to the extreme in either direction. We must realize that we're capable of going this one direction, of being too, too prosperous and denying God. You know, I think there are some people that have gotten so prosperous that God is not in all their plans or in their, in their minds at all. They just don't have any time for God. I mean, they're just too busy. they got plenty of other things to do. And everything else is more important than the Lord. And then the other extreme is to be so poor that you're so hungry and so much in need that what will you do? That you will steal. You'll do that which God has forbidden man to do. And the writer is telling us that he's capable of doing that if he's poor. Lest I be poor and steal and take the name of the Lord in vain, name of my God in vain. In verse uh, 10, Accuse not a servant unto his master, lest he curse thee, and thou be found guilty. Verse 11. By the way, verses 11 through 14, let's read them as a group, and then we'll come back, because all four speak of a word, a, a generation. It says, There is a generation that curseth their father, and doth not bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation... Oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are as swords, and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men. You have four things here in four verses. Four wicked generations. The first one is disrespectful, refuses to honor father and mother. Look at this. There's a generation, that's verse 11, look at these four that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. That's very much disrespect, isn't it? And then it says in verse 12, there's a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. It's a hypocritical generation, self-righteous generation. They're pure in their own eyes and yet they're not washed from their filthiness. And then the third one, there's a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There's proud. This is a proud generation. And then there's a greedy generation. Look at verse uh, 
14. There's a generation whose teeth are swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. They don't care how they get it or who from. Even the poor, they will rob them. In every age, there are monsters of ingratitude who ill-treat their parents, and many persuade themselves that they are holy persons, they're pure in their own eyes, whose hearts are full of sin, and who practice secret wickedness. And then there are others who are lofty and proud, and their lofty pride is manifest. And there are others that are also cruel monsters, and we have those in every age. And notice those four things. It says, There is a generation that curseth their father, and doth not bless their mother. That's one characterization. There's another one that we might see. There's a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from their filthiness, self-righteousness. There's a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and eyelids are lifted up. They have a proud look. Remember, the Bible says a proud look. And there's a generation whose teeth are swords, and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men. There were those kind of people in Solomon's day, and there are those kind of people in this day and hour. Look at verse 15, if you will. It says, The horse leash had two daughters, crying, Give, give. Two daughters. The horse leech, or the leech, it's L-E-A-C-H here, and another word, L-E-E-C-H, leech, means to adhere. It's a fixed figure of a greedy appetite of human desires. We call sometimes uh, them... A leech, a bloodsucker, don't we? And they they adhere. It's a figure of someone that has a greedy appetite of human desires, and he just can't let go till he just sucks all the blood out of it. And then, in, if you'll notice, it says there are three things that are never satisfied. You know what they are? Yea, four. Say not, it is enough. There are four. Sometimes he says there are three, and yea, four. There's really four of them. He just tops the list and caps it off with the four. I want you to notice these things that are never satisfied. What are they? The grave, verse 16, and the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, and fire that saith not it is enough. What are they? Grave, barren womb, the earth, and fire. How do these things show us that they never are satisfied? They're never satisfied. The grave is never filled with its victims. There's always a cry out for more. It's never satisfied because men continue to die. And all graves are not filled. And all the earth is not filled with graves. The earth takes men's bodies, people's bodies into the earth, and it's never satisfied. There's always room for another one. And then the next thing, notice, the barren womb. The barren womb longs for a child. Remember all through the Old Testament when a woman was barren, she desired more than anything to have have children. And in Israel of old, it was almost a disgrace not to be able to bear children. And therefore, they sought God in prayer to, to uh, give them children, many of the women, the Old Testament, because they wanted to have a child. And so it says, in a barren womb, always crying out and longing for a child. And then what? The earth that is not filled with water. There's a scripture that says that uh, it's like water poured upon the ground and it shall not be gathered up again. You ever go out here and spill a bucket of water or pitcher of water or something on the ground? In a little bit you can't even tell where it's been. The earth has drunk up that water. It's gone. And uh, we find that uh, it keeps on drinking. It's never satisfied. And then we find something else that's never satisfied. Fire that saith not it is enough. 
the fire keeps on burning all the material that's fed to it. And it devours anything. You just keep throwing things on fire that uh, the fire is able to burn and it just keeps devouring it. You could set a whole... uh, uh, block on fire in the city or a whole city. A whole city could be burned up. The whole county, we know what forest fires do. As long as there's material, as long as there's something for it to feed upon, it's never satisfied. I want you to look at verse 17. It kind of stands alone. Some of these verses need to be joined together and some kind of stand alone. Look at verse 17. It says, The eye that mocketh at his father and despises to obey his mother. What about that person? The ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. The judgment is that the body will be unburied for the birds to feed upon. It's a figure of God's judgment upon a person that despises, mocks his father, and despises the obedience to his mother. The Bible says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the earth, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And it's showing a figure here to... Sh- to show what God's judgment would be upon a person that disregards uh, the right to the uh, admonition to honor father and mother. Look at verse 18. It says, There are three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. Look at this. The way of an eagle in the air. The flight of an eagle in the air. Wonderful. Do we understand? You see the eagle flying up in the air? The majesty? And it says, We don't understand. Too wonderful for me. There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yea, four which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air. The way of a serpent upon a rock. A serpent upon the rock will not make any tracks or marks, but in the sand you can see where it's going. But on a rock, it's very mysterious and it's very subtle. They leave no tracks. And the way of ship in the midst of the sea. What about the way of a ship in the midst of the sea? Have you ever seen a ship going on the ocean and... It makes the big uh, waves and everything behind the movement of the ship and all the power and the mechanism that makes the ship go, the motors, the engines, and propellers, and etc. And then all of a sudden, after so long a time, you just see that begin to smooth out, and you don't know it anymore. It's gone. And then it says, and the way of a man with a maid. This indicates courtship. The modesty and mysterious courting of a young man and a young woman. And then in verse 20 it says, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. Her adulterous practices are as ordinary as eating. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. It's just ordinary for her to continue in her practice. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. She goes on in her own wicked way and doesn't consider that it's evil. You know, we have a lot of people today that do not consider the, the sin of adultery and fornication and wickedness in this world today. It's practiced so much and it's put before your eyes on television. Almost all your programs that you see have adulterous situations in them. Is that true? You turn one on, I'll bet you one, I'll bet you nine out of every ten, if you're watching some program, has an adulterous situation in it. You check it out. You say, Preacher, you're exaggerating. Look at them. You just happen to turn your TV on and walk by. Maybe you're trying to get the news. First thing you know, you've got it before your eyes. Because the public, the general public, has accepted that kind of a thing. And she, she wipes her mouth and, and, and says, I've done no wickedness. And then I want you to notice in verse 21, there are three things that uh, there are three things the earth is disquieted and for four which it cannot bear. It's hard to bear. 
And here's something that's hard to bear. For a servant, when he reigneth, he's unprepared and unfitted to reign. A servant's not supposed to reign. He's supposed to serve. You, you, you have to have men that are prepared for that kind of uh, rule that are to rule and reign. And then it says, and a fool when he is filled with meat. That's an overbearing situation. For an odious woman, a hateful woman, when she is married. The married woman is to be kind and tender and loving and caring and not hate, hateful. And a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. Now, that's a sad situation, isn't it? The example of Hagar. Remember what Hagar? Remember Sarah gave Hagar the handmaid to Abraham to bear a child and Ishmael was born. And the Bible tells us that she was, listen, let me read it for you in Genesis. Despised in uh, Genesis 16, verse 4. And he went in unto Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. Sarah said to Abraham, My wrong be upon thee. I've given my maiden to thy bosom. And when, she, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. Sometimes we get ourselves into situations. You know, Abraham was impatient. God promised him a son. But Sarah gets the idea, well, now I can take care of this. You know, I'm not having any children. I'm barren. She says, she'll bear a son for me. She brought it all upon herself. The first one, Paul uses this as an illustration in the book of Galatians. He says the first son was by a bondwoman. And then the other son that Isaac was born later on in a miraculous way to Sarah. And it was the son that God had promised and God intended Abraham to have. The other one was of the flesh. The second one represents the spirit. All right, let's notice something else. I like these next things. It says there are four things. This is verse 24. There are four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. They're little and yet they're to be admired. Here's four things that are to be admired. They're exceeding wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. The conies are but a feeble folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet they go forth all of them by bands. The spider taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. We'll get into these in a little bit. But the ancient expositors see in these verses a presentation of the church of God, weak on its human side and despised by men, yet exceeding wise. It says, like the ant laying up treasure in heaven, preparing for death and preparing for eternity. And like the coney, making the rock her refuge, and like the locust moving forward like a mighty army, and like the spider holding to the truth and dwelling in the palace of the great king. Some say that the spider is really a house lizard, and we're not going to discuss that because either one makes a good illustration. It's very possible that that's what's intended. But I want you to notice the verse 25 and verse 26, 27, 28, and we'll take them individually. Notice verse 25 again. It says, The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. Now, what do you see in the ants? You see the achievement of foresight. The achievements of foresight. They look ahead. Someone says, I'm not going to look ahead. Well, you, the Bible teaches that we ought to look ahead. The Bible does not teach that we ought to presume upon tomorrow and think we have it made. But the, the Bible does teach that we should prepare for it. Even when Jesus said, Take no thought for your life, for sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. 
Even when he said, be not anxious for tomorrow, he was not saying, do not even think about it. He was saying not to worry about it, not to presume upon it or not to worry about it so that you that you just uh, uh, was just so disturbed that what am I going to do tomorrow? That's the idea. But we're taught in the Bible that there has to be preparation for the future. We prepare for the eternal future and we prepare for the physical future if God permits that we have one. And as long as we have that future. And then notice. So the achievements of foresight. The ants prepare their meat in the summer. And then look at verse 26. The conies are but a feeble folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. Some say that these are rock badgers. Rock badgers. And what is it? The safety of a sound shelter is what they're seeking. What do they do? They make their houses in the rocks. They seek out a sound shelter. The first one of these little feeble folks that is teaching us is the ant because he teaches us to the achievements of foresight. The second one is the safety of a sound shelter. Make their houses in the... They have to have houses. They have to have protection. They want a safe place to dwell. By the way, this might uh, apply to you and I as Christians. Do we have the foresight enough to make provision for eternity by accepting Christ now? And provide for our eternal salvation while we have opportunity now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Do we have uh, enough sense to know that we need a safe shelter and make our houses upon the in the rocks and and want a shelter in, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ? We sing a song, a shelter in the time of storm. Do we have enough information from these little feeble folks that are to be admired? and exceeding wise to do the same thing in spiritual ways. And then we find another one, verse 27. It says, The locusts have no king, no king, yet they go forth all of them by bands. Now, we have a king going, but they have no king. And they go forth all of them by bands. This is the triumph of organization. They organize themselves, though they don't have a king, someone to lead them. Yet they know that organization is what gets them through. Have you ever heard of bands of locusts, of, of plagues of locusts? They all come in and they go out. It's, it's said, and I don't know how true it is, that they've driven miles and miles, even after they're off land, out into the sea. Because of their force and their uh, motion and their uh, organization, and of course disaster, but they nevertheless have gone forth by bands. And you read back in the book of Joel the various things that the locusts have done. And you, you'll find what all they have done. And they're in four stages in the book of uh, Joel, by the way. In all four stages of their development, they're seen. And they continue to progress. And they're like a, a triumphant organization that goes forth by bands. Well, if, if the locusts that have no king can go forth by bands. How about you and I and the church that have, we have Christ our king, we have the Holy Spirit as the administrator of the church, and we have uh, Jesus dwelling within us, we have the Holy Spirit guiding us, we have God's word to direct us, and we have everything going for us. Why cannot we be organized and prepared and go forth all together in unity by bands? And then the last thing, notice the spider. And as I said, some say that this is a house lizard. But either way you take it, 
the, the uh, message is clear. Taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. If it's a house lizard in the old palaces that takes hold by hands, and the word spider can mean that. In fact, many, in fact, all the research that I've done indicates that it is a lizard. And you can check it out. But anyway, regardless, even if it's a spider, it takes hold by hands. And it's in king's palaces. And this shows us the success of persistency. Do you just keep on taking hold one hand after another until you get where you're going? Are you persistent in where you're going in the things of God? Just keep on keeping on and you'll make it. Can you imagine the spider? If it's a spider crawling up the wall, it just keeps on until it gets to the top. If it's a lizard crawling up a rock wall, it just keeps on until it gets up there. One step after another, clinging and clinging and, and continuing and fighting and, and clawing until it finally makes it where it's going. Do you and I have that persistence? So there's four things that are to be admired. The achievement of foresight in the ant, the safety of the sound shelter in the coney, or the rock badger, and then the triumph of organization in the locust, and then the success of persistency. And that's what we ought to be is persistent. And then let's look at the next section. In verse 29, there are three things which go well, yea, yea, four are comely and going. There are four creatures here that manifest dignity when they march along. They manifest dignity. Notice, a lion which is the strongest among beasts and turneth not away from any. Nothing is more majestic than the lion as he walks. If you, you see these pictures on the uh, uh, animal, the, on the channels that show the animals out and discovery channels and various channels on the television. You see that old lion, he's just walking along there in, in pride and in majesty. And there's nothing more majestic than the, than the walk of the lion and deliberate and equal and firm. He's the king of the forest. And he lets every, everything there know that he is too, doesn't he? A lion which is strongest among beasts and turns not away from any. And then, notice something else. He's known for his strength and for his courage, isn't he? Then in verse uh, 31, a greyhound and an eagle also, and a king against whom there is no rising. A greyhound, remarkably fine and very fleet. Some say it, it means girt. In the loins, or it says horse. Some believe it's a horse in his uh, remarkably fine and very fleet action. And an he-goat also. And a king against whom there is no rising. His court is fully united to him. A king, look, against whom there is no rising up. No one rises up against this king. Why? Because his court is fully united to him. Those things are comely and going. And then now, look at verse 32. If thou hast done foolishly in lifting up thyself, or if thou hast thought evil, lay thine hand upon thy mouth. By the way, who has not done foolishly? And who has not thought evil? Lay thine hand upon thy mouth. You know what this indicates? Remember when the leper, he was known to be a leper, and he had come, and there were other people around, he'd lay his hand upon his mouth, and he'd cry out, unclean, unclean, because he would want people to know that he is unclean. And not to approach. We might well say that we've done foolishly in lifting up ourselves. Or we've thought evil. And when you've done this, it says, If thou hast done foolishly, or if thou hast thought evil, lay thy hand upon thy mouth. We need to be like Isaiah of old when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a, a people of unclean lips. 
Now then, the last verse teaches us this. Avoid all strong excitements and imitations. And anger is not comely, but self-restraint is the best thing. Now, if you don't believe it, look at the results of these things that we see in verse 33. And it's rather comical as well as, as, uh, as knowledgeable. It says, surely the churning of milk bringeth forth butter, right? And the wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood, right? These are things you don't want to do in anger, wringing of the nose. So forcing of wrath bringeth forth strife. And we're told what here not to do. Not to become angry because the results are plain. We need self-restraint. We need to know how to handle ourselves. We'll pick up with the 31st chapter of the Lord willing in our next lesson. We thank you for your patience, your kind attention.